นโมทัสสะภะวะทะวะระหะทะวะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทะวะระหะทะวะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทะวะระหะทะวะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังธรรมสังRecently, I was having a conversation with somebody I've known for many years, and he was commenting on, amongst other things, on the potential there is that human beings have for manifesting so much beauty, and also the opposite, and that which is not beautiful. And There's a Dhammapada verse, verse 53, where the Buddha talks about as many garlands can be made from a heap of flowers, so too much that is wholesome can be made of this human existence. As many garlands can be made from a heap of flowers, so too much that is wholesome can be made of this human existence. And the Buddha's teachings are all about how to help us recognize that which is wholesome, to cultivate that which is truly beneficial for ourselves and for others, and to be able to avoid that which is not beautiful. And you don't have to look very far or or read very read very widely to realize that the It's almost unbelievable horror that human beings can inflict on each other—the cruelty—and just within my lifetime, I, I can think back and 
things that have happened just in the last few decades brutality and Human beings do this you know, to other human beings and to other living beings. See? So what is it that means that some human beings miss out on manifesting that which is wholesome, that which is beautiful? What is it? What is it that gets in the way when there is this potential for for, for kindness and compassion and and generosity and empathy when there is this potential for beauty why do some beings miss out or why do we miss out so much of the time well the Buddha's teaching on this is that one of the, the deepest causes for that which obstructs the truly beautiful the truly wholesome is unawareness or avicca unawareness and unawareness manifests in many different ways one of the most dangerous and troublesome ways in which unawareness manifests is in a misunderstanding in the relationship with the sense of self or a misperception of the sense of self. What is this sense of self, this feeling of me, I, what is this? And as we all know, the Buddha taught not self, anatta, as an expression of understanding, of his insight. Even though there does appear to be a self, as we're all aware, the Buddha spoke about, looking after the self, taking care of the self, there does appear to be a self. However, this apparent self is not what it looks like. The image again that I have used so many times that makes sense to me is that the self is like a rainbow. It looks like a thing and you can paint pictures of it and take photographs of it. However, there's an understanding that that's not a thing and you don't go running after the rainbow, at least not if you are educated adult. The children might run after rainbows because they don't understand. However, once you've got a little bit of education, you know that that rainbow is a refraction of light through water particles and, and it looks like this. And, and the Buddha's insight was that the, the self looks like it's a source of security. However, he pointed out it's not. And, and clinging to it is an expression of unawareness, of avicca, and leads to all sorts of, all sorts of suffering. We're invited to contemplate, to go against the current of unawareness, to develop our faculties so as to ask the right questions in the right way at the right time. Look at what is this sense of self, this sense of me, this I that I take so seriously? My way, my wishes, my preferences, my beliefs, my opinions, my positions. What is this really? And so the invitation to use the teachings, use the opportunities we have to gently ask well, questions, such questions as who am I? And what is it that feeds this mistaken perception, this misunderstanding of the importance of self? Why do we become so selfish instead of manifesting the beautiful? 
through a way of selflessness and compassion and kindness and generosity or what is it that gets in the way and you don't even have to be committed to Buddha's teachings to be able to look at life and see that there's some serious questions around the, the significance of the sense of self because we're not born with a sense of self you look at little babies the first year or so there's, there's you can't have a conversation with a one-year-old child in the early stage of development the child can't even look in a mirror and see that it's a reflection of themselves they don't their mental faculties their brain pathways have not developed to the stage where there is a sense of self but as the years go by and if the brain is functioning properly gradually there is this habitual pattern this configuration of mental activity which by around about the age of five, six, seven, develops into an individuated sense of being somebody. And so around the age of seven, you can start having a conversation with, with children about the consequences of their conduct. And so we're not born with a sense of self. And a lot of people don't die with a very integrated sense of self. You can see what happens as people get older and start to lose the memory and we think our memory is our sense of self and our health is our sense of self. We start to lose our memory, lose our health and, and start to lose our faculties, lose our seeing, hearing. and So we start to lose the sense of self and a lot of people suffer the terrible condition of dementia and, and, oh, she's not there anymore, oh, he's not there anymore. Who's not there? Who's disappeared? What is this that's disappeared? They're still alive, they're still functioning, but what's, what's gone? What is it that has disappeared in old age? So we're not born with a sense of self. We don't, we often, often people don't die with an integrated sense of self. And yet in between, this sense of me is, we take it so seriously. Invest in a huge amount of time, huge amount of attention, huge amount of money, look after and defend and, and why are we doing that well the Buddha really wants us to ask that question why are we doing that it really genuinely surprises me that there are not more questions being asked like this in general public discourse well, why are people not more interested in the actuality of self because it's clearly behind so much of our activity if we're not born with it and don't die with it, then what is it really? Is it, is it really a self? Who am I? How many people really ask that question sincerely with, with conscious, intentional interest to find out? Well, that is uh, the invitation in these teachings to make the effort to ask such questions, to see beyond the way things merely appear to be, you know, to not to be afraid just because it feels threatening. I feel threatened. But what is it that really feels threatened? Is it wisdom that feels threatened? Is it truth that feels threatened? Surely wisdom can't feel threatened. Maybe it's delusion that feels threatened. Well, if it is, then we want to skillfully develop the ability to meet that, to meet our fear and feeling threatened when I feel challenged, I feel undermined, when I don't get my own way. 
what is really going on there, rather than turning away and maybe attacking that which we feel intimidated us or just distracting ourselves because it's uncomfortable. So, yeah, it surprises me that more people are not asking or inquiring into this structure, this dynamic, this pattern of habitual activities of mind that we call a sense of self. And also, it seems to me tremendously important, I've spoken about it a few times, I know, but I'd like to speak about it again because it seems, again, so relevant that the morphing of the sense of self that appears to me to have taken place over the last few decades, if scientists have been able to map the activity of the human brain that relates to the personality, to the sense of self, if they've been able to map this over the last few decades, I would expect that they would have witnessed a distinct change in shape of the sense of self. Even in my own lifetime, I've seen there's such a change in human conduct, human behavior. Whereas some years ago, self-promoting and self-aggrandizing was considered as vulgar. Now it's normal. It used to be that, again, as we've spoken about before, it used to be that the majority of people had some sort of a spiritual education. They believed in some external authority that relativized, effectively relativized their sense of self. Once again, I'm not endorsing the stories that people believed in that meant that they projected their authority onto an external agent. However, I do think it's worth stopping and considering the shift that has taken place in the activity of human consciousness, where now so many people are no longer protected from becoming self-centered. So in Buddhism, we, we don't emphasize a belief in some external anthropomorphic being. We have a concept of Dhamma, of reality, of timeless truth, and our trust and our conviction of the importance of that is what's behind, hopefully what's behind, are going for refuge. I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. And in so doing, there's a, a process of relativizing the I. The I is informed. The I is educated. The I realizes, hopefully, that it's not the main actor in this drama of life. This I, my I, is just one of many eyes and, and it wasn't there in the beginning when I was born and maybe it won't be there when I die and it's not of ultimate importance trusting that there is something of ultimate importance which we call truth or dhamma and then aligning ourselves with body, speech and mind out of faith in that principle and their spiritual education I know I spoke about this a few weeks ago talking about the difference between self-caring and self-obsessing. And the self-caring that the Buddha spoke a lot about, taking care of oneself, aligning oneself rightly, and that leads to sanity and contentment. Self-obsessing, on the other hand, 
that leads to insanity and anxiety, confusion. I would say also that the apparent global identity crisis that's sweeping the world now is related to this that desperate sense of a lack of security because so many people are trying to find security in something that is inherently insecure. The personality, the sense of self, character, the ego, whatever we want to call it. It appears at an early stage of life and with wise education, with spiritual education, then that sense of self is informed with the understanding that it's not the most important thing in the universe. And then the being is thereby protected from becoming too self-centered. However, for many people, they unfortunately they don't have that sort of education anymore. And so the consequence is that they're trying desperately to feel secure by hanging on to my thoughts, my opinions, my rights, trying to find identity in something that is inherently unstable. And that's not productive in any meaningful way. Well, the Buddha gave us these teachings which encourage us to trust that this is the case, that that we need more than merely material education. We need a spiritual education. We have these spiritual capacities and if we develop them, well then there's a chance that we can ask these really difficult questions, ask of ourselves these very difficult questions without freaking out. There's a psychological stability, as I spoke about a few weeks ago there. Going for refuge to the Buddha is like constructing a, a psychological fulcrum around which the activity of our being can be organized. And if we don't have such a frame of reference or such a fulcrum, then the activity of our being tends to organize around that other fulcrum, which is the ego, the sense of self, the personality. So there are people who emphasized this, thank goodness, and, and Ajahn Chah was one of those great beings who invested in developing his spiritual capacities and uh, integrity and mindfulness and skillful restraint and wise reflection, these spiritual capacities that we have, and many other capacities as well, but those four, these to me, tend to, tend to stand out and and so even when Ajahn Chah was at a late stage of his illness, and, and in fact Ajahn Amaro and I were talking about this recently, and I asked him uh, specifically uh, a story that he had related to me where Ajahn Chah had something like a stroke, and in 1982 he still had uh, the ability to communicate and talk, and, and at one stage he was talking about how his mind wasn't operating the way it is used to, and he he described it, he said, it's like, oh, there's monkeys messing with the wiring in the telephone exchange. He knew that his wires were getting crossed. And on another occasion, he, he talked about how he opened his mouth 
wanting to say, Sumato, come here, but the word that came out was Ananda, come here. However, he knew it was happening, and that knowing, that faculty of knowing, meant that he wasn't a victim to the disintegration of the sense of self. That's really valuable teaching to have faith in the possibility that this sense of self can be viewed with perspective, with understanding. However, there is a training, there's definitely a training, a definite education involved and, and effort that's required. So we're all familiar with making effort to, to live in the world and to get our needs met for food and clothing and shelter and medicine. We're aware of that. There's also the spiritual needs to be able to ask really, really important questions like what is this sense of self about? Who am I? Who is asking this question? Who wants to know? That's, that's a super interesting question. Who wants to know? And of course if we're just asking those questions intellectually then probably not going to be very productive. And if we're cultivating interest, if we've developed our spiritual capacities, and then perhaps we'll discover that there's enough clarity to be able to ask those questions and hold them in a way whereby they go deeper. So developing those spiritual capacities, developing integrity, appreciating how important it is to, as the Buddha said, live a life that is free from remorse. Remember the conversation between the Buddha and Ananda and asking what is the place of sila, what is the point of the cultivation of integrity? And it's, the answer was freedom from remorse. When the heart is burdened down from the consequences of compromising sila, compromising integrity, then remorse... Well, we probably all know what that feels like, the regret and the, what a burden in the heart. It feels heavy. And, and so cultivating a life of integrity, contributing at least to the potential of a mind that is clear. Cultivating mindfulness, and by mindfulness we don't just mean a, a kind of a, a mental disposition of you know, watching thoughts. That, that's part of it. However, you will know, know the Buddha's extensive teachings on on mindfulness and include all of our being as a sensitive presence for experience. Cultivating skillful restraint, not heedless reactive manipulation. And skillful restraint means is based on recognizing that we have conditioned habits of reactivity according to our likes and dislikes. Do we have to be a slave to them? You know? When the phone rings, do we have to reach it and answer it straight away or can we inhibit that reaction in a skillful way that's not just repressing the desire to pick up the phone or to look at the message that's come in? We can just react. We, we pick up the phone or, or with food, you see, it looks good, so we eat it. Well, 
probably in this, this stage of life we all realize there's all sorts of things that, that look yummy however they're not necessarily good for us and we need to exercise discernment which is the next the spiritual capacities of wise reflection cultivating wise reflection that capacity to ask questions that go against what might feel comfortable however they have the consequence of taking us to seeing beyond the way things merely appear to be so some of the questions we need to ask ourselves can be quite disturbing like who is responsible for my suffering really even if somebody did say something kind of patronising and disrespectful even if it was intended as patronising and disrespectful are they really responsible for my suffering well if they were that means the Buddha could never have gotten enlightened because the Buddha was on the receiving end of all sorts of unpleasantness however he wasn't disturbed his awareness was unshakable purified his heart was purified so asking the question when we're faced with suffering who is responsible for the suffering really is it somebody else's responsibility so the capacity for inquiring wise reflecting integrity mindfulness, skillful restraint wise reflection, these spiritual capacities if they've been developed well then there's a better chance that we can ask the question like why do some people fail to manifest the wholesomeness the beauty why do people lose touch with that impulse why are people not interested in it why are people not interested in cultivating that which is truly gladdening and delightful for oneself and for others and rather get pulled into causing pain to oneself and others it makes it easier to understand why some people get so indignant and upset just because you asked to put a mask on for instance it's not just a oh I'd rather not but impassioned indignation how dare you ask me to put on a mask where's that coming from my views my opinions my rights are feeling challenged and where's that coming from so being asked, being able to ask ourselves these questions, not just asking our heads, but asking more deeply. We have faith in the possibility of tremendous beauty, of, of real wholesomeness. How do we steward our faculties in a direction that actualizes that? Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayang Dhamma Kathaya Sadhu Karanda